Welcome to Real Estate Investing Unscripted, a podcast from Fund That Flip, where we explore some of the most creative, innovative, and inspiring stories from the real estate investor community. With expert tips and success stories you won't hear anywhere else, you'll come away with inspiration on how to improvise in the unscripted world that is real estate investing so that you can dominate your next real estate deal. Now your host, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip, Matt Rodak. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rodak, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. And today we have a really special guest, Ali Wolf, who is the Director of Economic Research at Myers Research. And I heard Ali give a keynote at a conference a few months back and just uh, absolutely knew we had to get her on the show because she's just got a, a ton of knowledge uh, on all things related to the housing market and, is an, and is a, has a really incredible knack for deciphering data uh, and then boiling it down into ideas that we can really, really all understand and grab onto and take action on. So with that, welcome to the show, Allie. Awesome. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thanks so much for being here. So maybe get us started, uh, just just a little bit of background on who is Myers Research? What do you guys do? Kind of how do you fit into the space? And then, um, you know, specifically, what are you, what are you doing there for the firm? So Myers Research has always been this housing consultancy firm based in California, but we have experts across the country that do advisory studies. So they'll do feasibility, market expansion, consumer targeting. So we've had that part of our business in place for years through different iterations of the company. We also have a Zonda iPad app, which has basically every piece of housing and economic data in one place. And why I kind of phrased it like that to begin with is just recently in December, we merged with Hanley Wood and Metro Study. So those were, you know, Hanley Wood was the broader company. Metro Study was the direct competitor to Myers Research. And we both had our own specialties in the new home space. And now we, as the combined company, are the largest data provider for the housing market across the country. My role specifically is to be our economist. I have been with the firm for over three years, came from a different consultancy firm before that, worked for the UK and the Canadian Parliament prior to that. So I really enjoy looking at policy as it relates to the housing market. But I also need to understand regional economics. I need to understand what happens to the housing market during recessions. Knowing every single recession is different, what are good leading indicators? Uh, We don't like to just look at a couple and say, well, this one's saying this. I have a collection of 10 that I look at. And for each of them, they have different trigger dates. That will be a point where you could then hypothetically forecast out when the next recession is. So we look at all of that and try to use that data to pinpoint recession. And then finally, I like to look at millennials in the housing market, largest living generation. They obviously can impact what happens to housing demand over the next five, 10 years. Got it. So Myers and Hanley Woods and Metro Study kind of all on the consulting side. And then Zonda is your your technology piece that kind of people can use and, and do some self-serving kind of studies. Is that is that safe to say? Yeah, exactly. We created some platforms within Zonda for some of our clients. They used to do a lot of manual work. And now with our program, you can drop a pin or you can circle things. And all of a sudden, all the comps, if you're looking to buy land, all just pull up and give you different graphs and 
it helps solve a lot of problems and make make life easier for clients. Very cool. Easy is good. So, so you hit on a little bit in your introduction. One of the things I really loved about your presentation a, a few months back was how you, how you cut through all of the noise that's out there related to what's happening with housing. Are we headed for another recession? If we are headed for another recession, you know, how will that, how, how may or may not that impact uh, the real estate market? You know, I think if you kind of just are following the headlines, it's like, man, like we should be getting out of the market. Like, you know, prices are leveling off, inventories are increasing, like no one's buying a house, mortgage rates are going up. Like, tell us what you're actually seeing from a, a data perspective and, and, you know, what's, what's actually happening here in kind of this uh, somewhat chaotic point within, you know, where we're at in the cycle. Yes. All right. So you hit on a lot of things that I want to hit on <laughs> as well. Uh, let's step back first. And what I notice about the industry, and you talked about headlines, what I noticed is a lot of people forget how amazing the first half of 2018 was. If you look at the stats for 2018, we were outpacing 2017 levels throughout most of the first half of the year. And that's kind of shocking because 2017 was just this pinnacle year for housing. It was crazy. It was feverish. There were bidding wars. But then, and your listeners may think I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist with this, but then there was one week in July that two different articles came out the exact same week. One was from CNBC, U.S. housing market looks headed, or sorry, this is Bloomberg, U.S. housing market looks headed for its biggest slowdown in years. CNBC says Southern California home sales crash, a warning sign to the nation. All of a sudden, everyone was saying, things are good, things are good. And those come out and everyone's like, what? <laughs> and we didn't see that coming. When did that happen? Right. And so I wanted to understand then, we all read it. We in the industry, some people were feeling a slowdown at that point. When you actually look at the CNBC article, it was talking about how sales under 500,000 in Southern California were slowing. Well, yeah, because you can't find anything under 500,000. Nothing to buy. So there was this, no, there's nothing <laughs> right. to buy. And if it is, it's crap. Like You don't want to buy it because right. maybe it's too far out or too old or whatever it is. So I then wanted to understand, what is that doing to us? So we're reading that. If you're a different news organization, if you're Washington Post, if you're Wall Street Journal, you want to catch up. You don't want to say, oh, we didn't think there was a housing slowdown. So then that kind of feeds into more and more articles coming out. And I started to use Google Trends as my way to gauge what that did. Google Trends basically allows you to look at what people are searching on the internet. And it just showed that people were not searching housing slowdown before July of last year. And the same week that those articles came out, spike, just housing slowdown became a very common thing to search. And it has not reset at all to the levels back before those headlines. Mm. And so I think, you know, I was at the gym the other day and someone was like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm an economist. He's like, ah, I'm waiting for the housing market to crash. I'm like, why do you think the housing market's <laughs> going to crash? And he's like, well, I was reading in the news. And so I do get a little bit nervous about the self-fulfilling prophecy mm. and the fear that comes from reading those. Because if you look at fourth quarter of last year, it was bad. It was ugly. There are not many markets that did better than 2017 um, for fourth quarter. And it was a pretty substantial drop-off in, in maybe Seattle or in LA. You saw really big pullback. But so far this year, the data that's available 
we have in Zonda, the actively selling communities in the new home market, 65% of them are now selling better than December, which you would expect. We're starting to get into a new year, starting to get closer to the spring selling season. And then even data from purchase mortgage applications are showing up 3% year over year. That's a weekly indicator. That's going to tell you exactly what demand is on the ground at any point of time. So we are at least seeing a rebound in demand. So the, the, that's an interesting stat on the purchase mortgage app. So that's year over year. So you said 2018 was up over 2017, at least for the first half of the year. And now we're seeing 19 over 18 up 3%, at least we're in February, yep. but okay. Okay. Yep. So, we're, so we're kind of back yep. onto a growth trajectory year over year even though we had maybe a little bit of a cooling kind of the last couple months of, of 18. Correct. I don't think 19 is going to be an amazing year, but I think we will see spring selling season start to tick up. Uh, as I talk to our clients, they're saying they're seeing increased traffic. They're seeing people coming out and searching. So it does really match what I'm seeing in that national data for the purchase mortgages as well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think sentiment, right, is a is a is a big thing in this market. How people are generally feeling, and I think um, even though we're you know ten years past two thousand eight, I don't think anybody wants to be the guy that that or gal that buys at the top of the market, right? So probably 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 not a bad thing. Maybe that we saw a little bit of a cooling, if you will, just to make sure that we're not getting ahead of ourselves. I, I think so. Anyways, can't can't go up forever, right? Yeah. And you were hitting on some interesting points when you were talking about how the market's changing and inventory is increasing and prices are leveling off. It's Those two things are so interesting too about how they're blasted out to the public and how the data actually looks. Because in some markets, months of supply, so that's how quickly will that supply be absorbed. It was at one month of supply and now it's at 1.2. That's a 20% increase. That is a great stat to put supplies up 20%. But in a lot of markets, that hasn't solved the supply problem. Right. We're still extremely undersupplied, especially, let's say, 500000 and below across the country. It doesn't matter really what market you're in. Entry-level price points are extremely undersupplied. A little bit of a buildup, I would say, on the move-up and on the luxury side. We are maybe seeing a little bit of oversupply in those spaces. Not for that, where that young generation is going for, or where just someone who is generally price conscious is going for. Yep. And with with prices, you look at Zillow is able to break out the data by low price tier, middle, and highest. And for their lowest price tier, you could say that price appreciation is slowing because in 17, appreciation was up 13% for the bottom tier home prices, and today it's up 11%. So that's not to say we aren't seeing slowing appreciation, but I think that also needs to be put in context. Is is it slowing from unsustainable levels? Is it slowing across every market? Or is it slowing at different price points when maybe we are seeing a buildup in supply and it makes sense that it would slow? Right. So let's talk a little bit about that a little bit, right? Because I think um, everyone just assumes that because we're, you know, X percent over the peak of 2008, that we're due for a, you know, a pullback. And I think Ben Ben Bernanke's, you know, famous for saying like, bull markets don't die of old age, right? Like something has to happen to kind of cause them to pull back. Like what are the, what are the underlying fundamentals saying about just generally 
housing demand and household creation. And, you know, I think the other stat that I like is from 2008 to 2018, we underbuilt, I think by somewhere around six and six and a half million dollars or six and six to six and a half million housing units, right. On a historical basis. So like, have we caught up with that supply? Is there, is demand still kind of, you know, outpacing supply? Like what's, what's going to be, what are the underlying fundamentals from a data perspective that may make a case for, you know, continued at least healthy, healthy kind of go forward housing prices? So I love that you talked about being underbuilt and then are we now changing that equation I have, and I obviously can't show it, but I have a graph that shows single-family housing starts per 100 households. And it basically shows from 2015 to where we are today. And you look at it, and it's just this hockey stick. And so if you look at that time frame, you're like, ooh, like I think we're overbuilding. Like There's a lot <laughs> of supply that's coming online. And then you take that exact same graph and you zoom out. And you can go to the 1970s, or you can go to the 1990s. However far you want to go back, it shows how still extremely underbuilt we are in today's marketplace. There obviously was some overbuilding during the last cycle, but that doesn't make up for population growth, for millennials aging, for a lot of the pent-up demand, people that were underwater in their homes that only in the past, let's say, three years started to get back to that place they could sell their home and move on. So I don't think we are at all in a place of balanced supply and demand. And people often look at me with like three heads when I say things like, in a way, I'm not calling a bubble, but I am saying a definition of a bubble is a mismatch between supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And during the last cycle, we had so much supply. And during this cycle, we have so little supply, but we have so many people that want to be able to afford a home. But builders weren't catering to it because a lot of them went into the luxury market or went into price points over the FHA loan limits, which make it hard for that next generation to come in. From the economic point of view, uh, we just wrote a blog on this. I think a lot of people put too much weight on the non-farm payrolls number that comes out. And everyone says, well, job growth is still there, so everything's fine. The reality is, recessions are actually called, officially defined, when the economy is still adding jobs. It's usually a lagging indicator if you look at just job growth. Consumer confidence as well. Consumer confidence goes up, 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 up. It peaks, and then it drops really quick. So that's not going to be a good leading indicator either. So there's different indicators that we would suggest looking at instead that could give you a broader picture of the economics landscape. I like to look at people that aren't concerned about losing their jobs. And I like to look at full employment. Those are a couple of indicators that can give you a better gauge versus some of the lagging indicators that are more likely to get picked up by the mainstream media. Got it. So that was, that was going to be my next question. So you said you've got 10 indicators that you look at. I don't know that we need all 10 of them, but so people that are not concerned about losing their job, full employment, what's maybe like one or two others that you think are like you know, something to kind of hone in on. And then where can people actually find this data, right? Because like, it's easy to get the, you know, the Wall Street Journal and everyone else reports the the new job creation and um, payroll growth and, you know, wage increases. But some of these other things maybe are a little less accessible or maybe not. Where, Where could we find this info? Sure. So full employment, you have to, this one's a little tricky because 
you need to set a gauge or marker. I set full employment at 4.5%. Different economists can use different measures. You have to look at when an economy hits 4.5%. Historically, how long has that been before a recession? And so that one people could get access to easily. You can download the data from Fred. It's available. Fred is the Federal Reserve Bank of I think it's St. Louis. Uh, a couple other ones that I look at that are accessible, so yield curve, and I know everyone knows about it, but I, you need to look at the spread between the 10-year and the two-year, and that's available on the Federal Reserve's website, and you can pay attention to that. You don't want it to be zero. You don't want it to be inverted. Where it is today, we're not at that level, but that has historically been one of the best predictors of recession. Again, it's up to you if you think this time's different, if maybe that's still a reliable indicator, but I think it's something that the market across the board and across the globe is looking at. Mm-hmm. And then also the ISM Manufacturing Index, which is also available for free online. You just download the data and just update it on a monthly basis. Generally, when it drops below 50, that's a really good warning sign. It will give you enough of a headway to say, hey, things are turning. And the only caution with that is sometimes it'll go below 50 and it'll be a false warning. So that's why you can't really look at any of these indicators in isolation. It needs to be the collection of as many as you can get your hands on. So an example of that would be like the ISM manufacturing index drops below 50, but people really aren't yet worried about losing their job. So it's kind of like maybe just a bad month and the sentiment at the, at the shop is still, you know, things are fine. We just had kind of a down month. Yeah, precisely. But having over, enough over to look at. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, Got it. So I want to get into some some other kind of topics. You mentioned millennials and, and a few other things. Before we go there, um, maybe maybe just talk to us a little bit um, on the correlation between recessions and actual housing prices, right? Because I've studied a little bit of this data and I'm by no means an economist, but I think everyone remembers the last recession, which was large part caused by housing. So like they were very correlated, but previous recessions, maybe talk to us a little bit about that. And, you know, can we expect as a severe kind of pullback in housing just because we're in a recession or, or maybe not? So that's a good question. And I've pulled the data for, sorry about that. I pulled the data for the past six recessions. And it breaks out into two, two, and two. So you have two recessions where home prices go down double digits. You have two recessions where home prices correct single digits. And you have two recessions where home prices actually go up double digits. Now, this is national data that I'm talking about. So if you're in Phoenix or Vegas or Orlando or Markets that have a big concentration, uh, for example, during the dot-com, California got hit harder because the concentration Mm -hmm. of tech jobs and how that was more impacted. So it does become more local when you look at what caused each of the given recessions. But broadly speaking, it's not an expected or guaranteed that home prices are going to drop. Got it. And I think that's one of the things that um, I'm curious about when the next one happens. because of the fundamentals and the demand of, of, of housing, how much does, does home prices actually feel? And I think there'll be an impact. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just not sure it's going to be a 2008 impact. 
No. Yeah. <laughs> not a systemic financial crisis. Let's hope yeah. Not. I agree. Anyways. Um, yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right. So uh, let's let's move on to a a, a near and dear kind of topic to me. Um, on your on your LinkedIn page, you list a specialty of understanding millennials. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about one why this demographic is is such a big deal, right? I think, you know, we hear it all the time and, and I'm not sure everybody really understands kind of why it's such a big deal. And then maybe we can get into a little bit of how are their buying patterns different? What are they looking for? Um, and if, you know, people are, are in the business of building new homes or fixing and flipping properties, how should they be thinking about developing product for this, uh, this very large and, and important group? Sure. So millennials are the largest living generation, which is why everyone's talking about them. You can look at the age range and it really varies depending on the source that you look at. But generally a 19-year-old all the way up to a 39-year-old will be part of the millennial group. You'll hear some that'll say 20 to 35. You know, So it's just right around that range that you're looking at. And they've become, besides being the largest living generation, they've become very strange to the generations before them because of all of the delayed life choices. Kids, buying house, getting married. But where we are today, if you chart out millennials by age, the largest share of the largest living generation is 27, 28, and 29 years old. So all of those delayed life choices that we've been waiting on are finally triggering, are already happening. And when that occurs, you're talking to some builders that say a big percent of all of their buyers are millennials. Some are saying it's just increasing more and more year over year. It, it really varies again on the market, on the price point, on the product. But I think one of the most frustrating things to me is saying every millennial wants walkability, every millennial wants experiences, every millennial wants avocado toast and those things <laughs> I do like avocado just, toast. I do like avocado. I like okay, avocado I know. <laughs> I do too. But my brother could not even imagine spending $5 in avocado toast. Yeah, he wants yeah. Campbell's soup. I get it. You know, like, and so it just when you think about this group as buyers, you have your share that are dying for a walkable community, want to walk to bars. But that's not the whole generation. And if you can't build something around that stereotype, that's fine. Because there are still buyers who just want to own. Some people just want to become a homeowner. They haven't changed this idea of the American dream. Millennials will make compromises. Maybe they'll buy smaller or they'll buy further out or they'll buy an attached home. There's a lot of different things that millennials will do. And if it doesn't have every single bell and whistle on day one, for a large share of the buyers, that's okay. We think that's often misconstrued. Yeah. And I think the, the big thing here, right? And, and I agree with you. I think the big thing here is one, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive group of people that are finally coming into the time in their life where they're ready to buy. Um, mm -hmm. And it's now 27, 28, 29. 30, 31, 32. Um, whereas mm -hmm. before maybe it was 10 years before then, mm -hmm. but that in mind is it's, it's their first time home buyers at that age, right. As opposed to move up home buyers. So I think what you're saying is it needs to be a first time home buyer product and price point 
whether that's, you know, in a community that's walkable and maybe is a smaller square foot space to get there from a price perspective, or maybe it is still your, you know, your traditional white picket fence on its, you know, half acre in a, in a subdevelopment. But regardless, the price has to be there as a, as, as you'd expect it to be for a first time home buyer. Is that, is that kind of safe to say? That is because they have a lot of, they came into or graduated and came into the economy at a fairly rough time. Their wage growth has been more stagnant than other generations. Of course, they have more student debt. Uh, so price is going to be a big factor. But for broad generalizations, most of the time, the preference is for single-family detached. Most of the time, the preference is for three-bedroom. And there's a bit of a, a mix between craftsman and modern being two of the favorite styles. Now, this is based on sample data that we've been tracking over the past few years. So there's a point where you say, I want a single family detached home. And then there's the reality of, oh, I need to do an attached home at 1200 square feet because that's all I can afford on day one. Yep. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about that affordability. And I think it certainly applies to the the millennials, but I think it it extends beyond just that generation in terms of, um, right. We have, uh, we have people that want to own homes. And I think we also have, uh, builders that have a hard time kind of buying land and getting it entitled. And, you know, we've seen, uh, wages increase and labor's hard to come by and tariffs and supplies are getting more expensive. So it's getting difficult to actually build new homes at a price point in a location where people want to buy. What, what are you guys seeing here? And, um, you know, what, what are maybe some of the more creative strategies or different ideas you think that, that, you know, people could be thinking about in terms of kind of attacking this, uh, this affordability problem? Sure. And to wrap up the millennial discussion and segue it into affordability, we created this millennial desirability index that pulled together job growth, cost of living, wage potential, quality of life, affordable housing availability. We rolled all of that up into an index, basically chose those categories because every year when we survey millennials, we say, have you seriously considered moving? And almost 50% of my respondents said yes. And they said for job opportunity or affordability. Those were their two biggest things. So just based on that stat, we have Dallas, Houston, Austin, Phoenix, Denver, to some extent, though it's becoming quite expensive, Orlando, Jacksonville, those are some of the the top markets for relative desirability if a millennial is going to get up and, and switch. And a lot of that actually is driven by the affordability and the cost of living. Um, when you look at affordability, I think a lot of people get trapped in saying, I've pulled up the affordability index. And we know LA, Seattle, San Francisco, DC, New York, Miami, we know those are expensive markets. So it's fine. The affordability ratio is still really high in Charlotte, still really high in Raleigh. That's where we need to to go attack next. And I think that in Dallas too, that leaves out that there are the lion's share of people in those areas grew up in Dallas or Raleigh, or Charlotte. And those markets have become really, really expensive relative to themselves. Mm. And so I think that's something people really misunderstand about affordability is, oh, we have these other affordable markets. 
a lot of these markets went through bidding wars where people would pay 20000 over asking price at a $200,000 base price. So that all of a sudden starts to, to really put pressure on buyers. Interesting. For creative ways to get out of it, increased density, but does that decrease desirability in some markets for some buyers? Yeah. Uh, can you do prefab? Yes, we know Amazon's getting into it. We know Berkshire Hathaway's with Clayton Holmes. They're involved in it. Integra. There are a lot of companies that are doing it, but is it easy to just change the strategy? Is it really going to save you a lot of money? Are there going to be some headaches from the buyers as they go? Do they want prefab? Um, I think Clayton did a really good job with their... Have you seen their new advertisement that they've done? I have not. I have not. Okay, they just did a cool video where they just tried to say like prefab is cool and efficient and fun and there's no stigma associated with it. Yeah, right. So yeah. So all of that smaller homes, but again, is it accepted? Do people want to give up square footage, just be able to afford a home in a lot of cases? Yes. We've seen a big shift in the supply of homes. Um, used to be, well, here's my stat right here, actually. We have back in 2000, 40% of all homes built were under 1,800 square feet. Today, it's 20%. Now, of course, you laid out all the reasons why it is so low. If it's lumber, if it's labor, if it's land, there's all of these different cost pressures. But I think people have to be creative and have to think differently than they have in the past. And this is probably more of an opinion question than a hard data question, but it'd be interesting in your insights. I think we're kind of somewhat going through a, a, and this may have been what happened kind of towards the back half of last year of a reset of expectations on what you can get for X hundreds of thousands of dollars in any particular market, if you, especially if you want new, right? And I think... I don't know, that's kind of what we're seeing now is people are coming to grips with that. You know, if they've got a $300,000 budget in Charlotte that may have used to buy a 1800 square foot house and now it buys a 1500 square foot house and like they're, they're, they're becoming okay with it. I don't know. Do you think, do you think that's where this is going? Like if we believe kind of the new norm on the, on the, uh, on the pricing side in terms of just a, from a cost basis and we believe there's still strong demand in the, in the country to own homes. Do you think we just have to go through maybe a period of, of expectation resetting where those two things can, can align and, and work for both parties? So I think that's a really interesting point. And I do think after years of the run-up in prices, there probably was a point that people that were searching for homes that initially went out and said, I have 300000 I can get this. And then they kind of get slapped with reality and they're like, oh, that's not actually what the market has. I do agree with you, but I do think what happened at the end of last year was a little bit damaging when builders needed to do incentives and they either cut prices or they did these options and upgrades because what that did is reset our reset of expectations (laughs) (laughs) because now people are saying, what deal do you have for me? I know the market's flowing. What can you do for me? Right. And so I think then if, you know, I've been to a few communities in Seattle and here in California where people have said, we started to see people come out asking for deals. So then we started to see this higher sales pace. And when we did that, we got rid of our deals. And then people came in and they were like, I thought you were cutting prices. 
And so they have now this push and pull of, can they raise prices? Will people accept it now that people think the market's slowing? So I think it's a really interesting dynamic today. Yeah, it'll be, I think 2019 will be a, a very interesting, interesting year potentially just to see how things shake out given uh, everything that you talked about in terms of how strong half of 18 was, how kind of the pullback in the half back half and how we seem to be back on pace. So it's, it's going to be an interesting year, I think. Um, all right. So we're going to get you out of here on this. So the, the theme of our show is real estate investing unscripted. We usually have a guest share a story of a deal or project um, that, that kind of was had a gotcha laced into it. And, um, I think for, for you, I'm going to switch it up a little bit just because, uh, you know, you're, you're not actively operating real estate on a daily basis, but, um, kind of along those lines, if, if there's one thing that's out there that, that, um, we've talked about a few of them already, and I'm wondering if you have another one, one thing that's out there, that's kind of a misunderstood data point that people are leaning into that the news is putting out there that um, maybe needs a little more context or needs to kind of, you know, be peeled back a layer or two to really understand what that means. Like, what is that? And and how should people be thinking about kind of maybe questioning what exactly that, that um, headline or stat really means? I think that inflation is the data that's most misunderstood, but I don't necessarily think it's misunderstood from the media point of view. I actually think it's us economists that haven't realized that the world is changing and haven't changed our formula. Same with GDP that's been around since the 1930s. Does today, uh, today's economy look anything like the 1930s? Right. No, but we're still measuring it in a similar manner as we did. So I think there's a lot of broad economic trends GDP, inflation, productivity, that are trying to look at the economy the way it always has. And I don't think that's the best way. So I think we'll be a little bit surprised when you talk about inflation. Remember, obviously, it's a broad increase in prices. It's not that your favorite shoes are now more expensive. It needs to be that a whole bunch of things are more expensive. But I think if we change the way that we measured inflation, we would see that there's a lot more out in today's marketplace than we'd expect. And I think that could end up being pretty bad news for the economy if the Fed isn't able to stay ahead of that. So we may just not be knowing what to look for to actually give us our leading or lagging indicators because we're we're still kind of looking at things through a lens of an older economy, if you will. That's interesting. Yeah, like the pre-internet economy. Yeah. yeah. Right. How, do you, how do you measure like uh, Google AdWords price increases? I don't yeah. know. Is that going? Exactly. To, Thank you. I would imagine it does, but I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. This was awesome. This was super interesting. Uh, really appreciate you come coming on and, and sharing some things. Um, if people want to get a hold of you or learn more about Myers Research, what's the what's the best way for uh, for that to happen? Sure. So our website is Myers. It's M E Y E R S L L C Myers Research LLC dot com. My email is a wolf like the animal at Myers LLC dot com. And if you guys are on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active. I share a lot of my research. I share what work I'm going to. So uh, feel free to find me on there just under Allie Wolf. So check out Allie on LinkedIn, uh, Allie Wolf. And also, uh, I do read your blog posts, by the way. So check out MyersResearchLLC.com. Allie's putting out some great content around all of this stuff in real time and how to kind of make sense of, of what's happening. 
uh, at least at a macro level. So this was awesome. I'm going I'm to try to summarize some of the key points that I had. I think the, the, the big, the big three were, um, don't just read the headlines, you know, need to understand some context. I, I loved your point around inventories up 20%, you know, it went from one month to 1.2 months. Like we're still somewhat undersupplied. So, um, you know, and, and I think kind of along those lines, the data, the data also needs to be local to you, right? So just because um, the journal or someone else is putting out a, a, a massive headline about good things or bad things, um, I think we all know this, but real estate tends to be a very local market. So pay attention to that. And then um, I liked your, I liked your uh, uh, indicators leading and lagging um, specifically like, yeah, we hear these things that are out there all the time and those are more lagging indicators. Let's pay attention to the things that are, are leading indicators and you gave us some good ones there. So awesome stuff. Anything else you would like to, uh, to, to close us out with? No, just thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So thank you, Allie. And thank you uh, all out there for listening to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. For more great resources or to get funding for your next project, uh, be sure to head on over to fundthatflip.com. Otherwise, I look forward to uh, next time. Your host, Matt Rodek, signing off. Mm -hmm.